In my last podcast, I ended with reflections on how the spatial conditions of our cities have profound influence on us and how spatial divisions wound deeply. This concept will appear again and again throughout this series, how spaces can wound and how they can heal, and how this reality relates to all people of the city, whether they are rich or poor. In this podcast, I revisit my home country of the Sudan and again aim to draw parallels between the Sudan and South Africa. This time I am specifically considering public space and protest. Where there is revolution, there's a central gathering point. Just think of Egypt's Tahrir Square, Taksim Square in Istanbul, and Habib Bourgeba Avenue in Tunisia. They all captured the world's imagination as places where the power of the masses couldn't be ignored. As an architect who studies urban public spaces and as a Sudanese, in December 2018, when protesters rose up against Omar al-Bashir's regime in the Sudan, I wondered which space would become Khartoum's equivalent of Tahrir Square, which of the Sudanese capital city's public spaces would hold similar symbolism. Some open areas in Khartoum, such as Al-Sah al-Khadra, have historical links to the overthrown al-Bashir regime, and they would not have been acceptable to the protesters. Other spaces hold immense symbolic value, but would raise questions about links to specific political parties. Buildings of significance, such as the parliament in Umdurman, did not offer a public square in the true sense of the word, and would not have been an appropriate gathering space. The answer emerged on the 6th of April in 2019. Hundreds of thousands of people marched to the Sudanese army's headquarters in the Ministry of Defense's complex in Khartoum. That march evolved into a multi-day sit-in and continued then for many, many weeks. It was a powerful, significant choice of venue. Firstly, the army headquarters are usually off-limits. Photography is not permitted and access is restricted. Yet the army permitted a massive gathering on its doorstep. Secondly, the army actually went on to actively defend the protesters at that time. It was believed that the venue offered protection and security. This was sadly not to be, but while it lasted, this site was a symbolic choice. The protesters dreamed of an army collaboration and believed that it would be crucial to achieve a peaceful transitional government. So what lessons may be learnt looking back on this experience? This Sudanese experience echoes what research and history have repeatedly shown. Urban public spaces may be built to represent governments, but they are often appropriated by citizens and become sites of protest. The space in Sudan had not been a gathering place before, and the roads that surrounded the complex actually held no special characteristics spatially or architecturally, yet they were appropriated, and they came to serve the protesters' purpose well. While it lasted, it became an altered space. The Sudanese military complex in Khartoum is comprised of three sections. The land forces occupy a section that's built to resemble army tanks. The air forces section is shaped like an airplane and the navy section resembles a ship. This approach to architecture, buildings that project their meaning in a literal way, has a name. Ducks. The spaces adjacent to the buildings were inhabited by protesters who literally lived on the site. 
The protesters transformed the streets. Some argued that this space had become at the time a microcosm of the future Sudan that the protesters envisioned. It was a space where freedom of expression was permitted. Murals and street art were everywhere. Temporary classrooms were set up to commemorate a teacher who was killed by the security forces. Makeshift clinics staffed by volunteers offered free medicines. People on the ground told stories about free food, water and medicines that were being provided through donations. Street children and the homeless were accommodated. Engineering and architecture students worked to build drinking fountains and temporary toilets were set up. Street traders sold their goods. Cultural activities were many, and musicians and political leaders from different parties visited the area every day to entertain and educate. The routes were pedestrianized. Protesters would not let vehicles in, apart from those making important deliveries. Welcome to the podcast on African cities, where we envision alternative futures, understand African cities and people's experiences at a deeper level. We also engage in dialogue between African cities. Our host, Professor Amira Osman, Research Chair in Spatial Transformation, is located in Pretoria, South Africa, at the Tswane University of Technology. So there are currently three to five million people living outside of the Sudan who hold Sudanese citizenship or identify themselves as having Sudanese heritage. As mentioned in our previous podcast, this is a condition of many African countries and Africans in the diaspora continue to play a major role in what happens in Africa. And this happens in various ways, which we will discuss and which will unfold in these podcasts. So these people living outside of the Sudan are deeply connected to the home country. When the Sudanese revolution erupted in December 2018 and progressed well into 2019, it became apparent that there were strong connections between virtual and real space as well as between virtual and real time. The lives of Sudanese in the diaspora completely changed, many believing it was their responsibility to become the voice of those leading the struggle at home. So identities are and continue to be created in virtual space and beyond geographical locations. Virtual spaces such as social media sites played a major role and continue to do so in forging new cultural, personal and political identities of people living in a diaspora. These online platforms have reinforced a sense of belonging culturally, nationally, emotionally and spiritually to the country of origin, in this case to the Sudan as home. These new identities do not rely on a geographical location. The relationship between those in the country and those outside of it generated numerous debates about nations and cities as concepts, how Time and space has been unsettled and reorganized, 
and how the nation has become detached from a formal territory. And this idea of citizenship in a diaspora has been written about in various texts and considered by various philosophers and various authors. So the role of the Sudanese professionals in the diaspora became very evident as the revolution unfolded. The Sudanese revolution was unique in that it was predominantly driven by professionals. It was dubbed a revolution of awareness, Thorat Wai, with a focus on technocratic competence and intellectual contributions. The Sudanese Professional Association at the time was the force that drove the protest, and this alliance of independent professionals in the first part of the revolution was shrouded in mystery. Sudanese professionals in the diaspora regrouped and devised ways in which they could support the revolution. They began to rebuild dismantled professional unions and associations and embrace technologies that allowed for vibrant online communities. I am part of this diaspora, like many other Sudanese who have made lives elsewhere. I have continued to be deeply connected to my home country. As the revolution unfolded, there was a site that was occupied near the military headquarters in Khartoum. Many believed that that site became a microcosm of what people envisioned to be a future Sudan. And this vision was believed to have been kept alive by Sudanese in a diaspora. So when the protesters occupied that space in Khartoum, they believed that it represented the concepts and the slogans of the revolution, freedom, peace and justice, hurriya, salam, adala. Sudanese in the diaspora sent money to make this happen. Fundraising was many times ad hoc and community-based, but it was also a massively organized activity. This is not unique to the Sudan. It is well known that money sent into African countries is sometimes three times greater than aid that goes to those African countries. And this invisible reality is also a global phenomenon. What happened in the Sudan was at an unprecedented scale. And I have personally labeled the Sudanese revolution at the time as a revolution of legendary Sudanese generosity. The money that came in, the support that came in really kept the revolution alive and supported the protesters and supported their families. Sadly, the sit-in and this occupation was violently dispersed on June the 6th in 2019. But the meanings of the space continue to remain very strong in the Sudanese psyche, even in its absence. Perceived as a threat, the artwork was eradicated, walls were whitewashed, and all evidence of that occupation and site of the sit-in was wiped out. But it remains very strong in our mentalities. So during this whole transition, Sudanese have used virtual spaces to visualize new and transformed Sudanese cities. In this revolution, as mentioned earlier, it was the professionals that very much drove the protests. And it was the built environment professionals that guided a lot of this conceptualizing of what a transformed Sudan and what transformed Sudanese cities would be like. As an architect who studies 
space. I am particularly interested in how these virtual spaces have been used to provide places in which architects, engineers, and others who visualize and create cities have envisioned this new Sudan. Sudan is currently in a period of uneasy peace and a period of an uneasy transition. And a lot of the ideals of the revolution have not been realized. Uh, Sudan is going through incredible economic and political hardship, a lot of violence and a lot of instability. So the ideals of that revolution have not been realized during the transition period. Some have referred to the Sudan as a lost paradise. Many continue to produce imagery inspired by gleaming skyscrapers, bullet trains, and the man-made oases of places like Dubai. However, I believe that in our conceptualizing of a new Sudan, that a different manifesto needs to come into play in the planning of the cities of Sudan, the neighborhoods, and the buildings of the future. As imagery emerges more and more in these virtual spaces, I put forward a manifesto for the future development of Sudan and Sudanese cities. In the first instance, I would like to say that the glass and steel air-conditioned towers emerging in social media are not only problematic in environmental terms, but they have implications by focusing on big capital and big players. And in order for future developments to be inclusive of small and medium construction enterprises, um, small and medium commercial enterprises, we need to really carefully consider the design of those buildings and those spaces. We need to consider materials that can be sourced locally, transported easily, installed easily, where skills transfer can happen, and that really relates strongly to the economic, environmental, and social conditions of the context. This is in direct opposition to some of the imagery that emerges. My second point of my manifesto is that we need higher densities, and that means more opportunities for small businesses that can be supported on foot, it also means more viable transport systems and more economic service networks. High densities do not necessarily mean high-rise towers. They can be achieved through the careful use of medium-height perimeter blocks, and they can respond to the built heritage of the Sudan, they can respond to the climate and the terrain, and they can be quite appropriate if carefully considered and carefully designed. The third aspect of this manifesto is that in the hot, dry conditions of much of northern Sudan specifically, considering what buildings and city space can contribute towards modifying the microclimate is key. Passive cooling mechanisms, shade, ventilation, and managing dust are key at both urban design and building levels. By better using open space, an ancient practice that establishes a strong connection to the temperature changes throughout the day and seasons is maintained. Traditionally, much has been done outdoors from the afternoon to the early morning of the following day. This relationship to the outdoors must be maintained at the level of the house as well as the level of urban design. Transitional and intermediate spaces must be fully harnessed. Charles Courier has referred to the creation of multiple lines of defense on building envelopes. 
We need to rethink the idea of each house as an island where everyone finds on-site solutions, but also avoid thinking of fully centralized systems. In this manifesto, I ask, could we conceptualize unique neighborhood-level solutions that become dynamos for entrepreneurship and job creation? The fourth aspect of my manifesto says that environmentally, there are many challenges, but also many opportunities. In Khartoum specifically, the rivers are a major resource. We need to harness the water of the rivers. Not only do we need to work strategically along the riverbanks, bearing in mind that the riverbanks must always remain accessible to the public and never be privatized, we also need to devise ways in which waterways can extend into the land and cities. We need to use this not only to modify the microclimate, but also to better manage rainwater drainage systems. With limited or no ground cover, Khartoum does have an abundance of trees. This characteristic needs to be retained, not only for environmental and heritage reasons, but also to further assist in the modification of the microclimate. And the fifth and final point in this manifesto states that in this process of innovating unique, context-specific and relevant solutions for the future Sudan, Public awareness and consultation should be part and parcel of the plans of the implementation process. A pro-poor policy which serves the majority of the population and supports people's rights to the city, to space and to opportunity must be promoted. Our transitional government, setting the scene for a democratic government, should start facilitating innovative tenure, design, procurement, financial and delivery systems. And these need to be funded and supported through targeted government programs. Thank you, Professor. What an engaging conversation. We acknowledge our supporters and funders who make this podcast possible. The Twine University of Technology, the Department of Science and Technology, the National Research Foundation, and the South African Cities Network. The fate of other iconic places of protest hasn't always been celebratory or positive. Sometimes authorities move to eradicate history and memory in these spaces. Despite the tragedy and the fate of the protesters, there are still hopes that Khartoum's story might be different. Architectural groups on social media have discussed the possibility of retaining this space as a freedom square in future plans for the city. Others have argued that this is not possible because of the site's military nature. In South Africa, public space is often a place for protest. In addition to that, access to space in cities is a point of great contention. How space is inhabited, occupied and used creates conditions where the different aspirations of different stakeholders are not always aligned, and this leads to disputes and conflict. At Warwick Junction in Durban, half a million people use the site on a typical day. Warwick Junction has about 6,000 informal traders. It has been argued that the financial capital in circulation at Warwick Junction is comparable to the capital flows of all of the city's centres and shopping malls. 
yet Warwick Junction has a difficult relationship with the city. This ambiguous relationship means that no regular cleaning or maintenance is implemented and there is a constant risk of displacement. This is a scenario that happens often as a response to informal activities in the city and services are withheld from communities. If a plan to construct a mall proceeds, this means that an intricate network of farmers, producers, transporters, traders would be disrupted. This is a threat to thousands of people who are not necessarily operating within a specific site, but service it in one way or the other. The markets survive in an arguably more hostile environment than during apartheid. It would be unfortunate if they are lost in a democratic era. Durban and other cities fail to make space for the most disenfranchised of actors who often fall outside of state registers and who want to claim their space and their voice. This is a topic for future conversations.